0: what's up internet homies welcome to episode number three of whiskey and water the fly fishing film tours podcast we drink a little whiskey uh we talk about uh fishing and endeavors that happen on and around the water and this time we're going to the source we are enjoying uh some fine craft spirits from our friends at dry fly distilling in their hq in spokane washington and talking with our friend don poffinroth co-founder co-owner of dry fly and about his uh transition from uh, the corporate world into the early days of of craft craft distilling uh in the u.s and in the northwest and we also talk uh, about casting for a cure a, a organization and uh group that is is close to close to our heart here at uh the fly fishing film tour and uh to that of the folks at at Dry Fly as well. So hope you dig it. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, This is episode three of Whiskey and Water with Don Poffenroth. Got uh, Don Poffinroth here, founder and co-founder and co-owner of Dry Fly Distilling here in Spokane, Washington. We're in the uh, the belly of the beast here at the Dry Fly Distillery for episode number three of Whiskey and Water, the Fly Fishing Film Tours podcast. Very, uh, very application. Uh, we're drinking a little dry fly, uh, whiskey and, uh, and learning a little bit about whiskey and the distilling process. Uh, Don, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. So this is a really, really cool facility you guys have here. We're surrounded by, uh, some, some oak barrels. looks like some, uh, with some whiskey in them aging, uh, some ready to uh, be uh, have whiskey added, as well as a, a bunch of uh, cases of dry fly ready to go out to an anxious public this is also a busy day too. You guys are uh, bottling bourbon, yeah, correct? Uh, every day is a busy day, man. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> there's no such thing as a non-busy day anymore.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, DryFly is only five
1: people. Actually, four point six, if we get super technical about it, compared to uh, or based upon what the federal government allocates and, and does. But so we're a really small group. But we've uh, we've kept it that way because we're we're big believers in passionate, engaged people. Yeah. And
0: you guys have grown a lot over the years.
1: When did DryFly start? Uh, The planning process for DryFly started in 2006. We actually started implementing in early 2007, and then kind of mid 2007 had our first products that we sold.
0: And can you tell us a little bit about the the beginning, how the whole thing started?
1: Yeah, great question. Uh, So uh, my business partner Ken Flashman and I were were fishing buddies, and. and, uh, I worked for a gigantic food company, and uh, part of my job in that marketing arena was to uh, entertain clients. And, and we had a, a lot of people who we did a significant amount of business with. Uh, I am not a golfer, so my default was to take people fly fishing. So whenever I was given the opportunity to either go work in a marketplace across the United States or to gather a group of people together, um, I was going to take people fly fishing. That was my thing. Uh, so I had an annual trip I did to Montana every year, and I would take maybe six or eight people from across the United States uh, to this event, and we would fish the rivers of Montana together. Um, some of these people had never fly-fished in their life. Some of them have done it forever, so it was always a great group. And what I've had about Kent, he was maybe in, invited the second or third year that I, I did that event, and uh, Kent and I were always the last people around the campfire or sitting somewhere uh, drinking whiskey together. And that really was kind of our initial thought process of, of, starting dry fly. And it really started out kind of, there are better things to do than to work for corporate America. And, uh, since we were such avid consumers, we figured why not make liquor?
0: Yeah. Keep it, keep it, uh, close to the heart. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, and you named it, uh, close to your passion and, and, uh, you guys have a really cool, uh, dry fly logo. Um, Tell us a little bit about the early days, so 2006, 2007, when you guys first started. Yeah, a
1: lot of planning. And and, uh, I I think small business people all understand this, but the average person doesn't. For us, it was a gigantic leap off a cliff. Uh, We both had very successful jobs where we were paid stupid amounts of money, and we had all those cool things like expense accounts and company cars and and all that kind of stuff, and we threw all that away, ultimately, because we believed there was something better to do, and I think, typically, people who are marketing or product-oriented people like like to, at some point in their life, do their own thing, so this was our application of doing our own thing. Um, we were fortunate, from a timing standpoint, to, to kind of hit this market right. We were one of the first small distilleries in the U.S., and, and that has placed us in some amazing places, as we sit here today, so... Here, you know, nine years later, we sell product in thirty-five states. We distribute it to twenty-two countries outside the U.S. We had no vision that any of that was going to happen. Um, consequently, unfortunately, we never get a fish as much as we used to. But it's it's uh, it's all part of the
0: greater plan. Careful what you wish for. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, Speaking of uh, Dry Fly product, we've got a little in front of us here. Uh, can you tell us what we're drinking right yeah, now? Yeah,
1: so we're doing our bourbon uh, today. So we're, we're bottling bourbon in our plant today, so it was easy for me to just go uh, steal some stuff off the bottling line. Um, so DryFly makes around 11 different styles of whiskey. We've sold about four of those so far. So we still have seven or so whiskeys that the world's never seen. And uh, the greatest part of that story is the seven things that we have coming are better than the four we've already sold. Um, so I'm just really happy with kind of this, uh, this multi-year plan uh, that we have that's finally started to come together. It's super fun. Well, cheers. I'm going to yeah, uh, try this out. Bourbon's a really interesting thing, right? Bourbon mm-hmm. is America's whiskey. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can only make bourbon in the United States, and there are some criteria you have to do to do that, and typically 51% corn aged in a new American oak barrel and, and things like that. Um, so we literally, because there hadn't been a distillery in the state of Washington since 1916, bourbon had been never been made in the state of Washington. So we basically made the very first bourbon ever in the state of Washington. So it's it's kind of a fun thing to talk about.
0: Very cool. This is excellent. Oh, thanks, uh, man. Very very tasty. It's yeah, good, it's
1: good fish and whiskey.
0: I, I don't doubt it. I, I I don't have yet to meet a bad one, but this one is especially good. <laughs> yeah. um, the the uh, kind of burgeoning um, Field of, of craft spirits across the U.S. Uh, growing faster uh, all the time. There's a, a bit of a phenomena that seems to be occurring uh, throughout a lot of the uh, some more famous brands. Um, that uh, whiskey's hard to make. Uh, well, it's hard to make, but it's also uh, needs to be aged. Right. Correct, And uh, there's a lot of folks that are able to come out with uh, whiskey under their label or bottle it themselves right out of the gate, but it didn't necessarily come from their distillery, correct? Yeah,
1: really good point. Um, we, we call it the conundrum of the fakers versus the makers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, good or bad, and, and listen, there I have some friends who bottle other people's products, and they tend to be the people in our industry who are pretty forthright about it, and mm-hmm. they'll be the first one to tell you. Unfortunately, in this industry, because uh, there are kind of significant sales dollars involved, right, there is a pathway to cheating, for for lack of better terminology. And right now, our government is kind of the, the sole keeper of all those rules, but they don't have the capability of enforcing anything. So we have a little bit of a Wild West scenario going on right now. Uh, So I think that the damage in that whole scenario is consumers are not necessarily getting what consumers think they're getting. And that's what bothers us more than anything else is that I don't really care that someone chooses that path to manufacture a product or not. We've kind of chosen our path, and and we choose to be that farm-to-bottle guy. Someone may choose a different path, but when they mislead the consumer, that's kind of what upsets us. Um, there are products that will say they're made in XYZ City, when in reality not a single thing was done in that city. And, and we think that that's deceiving the customer, and that's what kind of irks us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What does the process look for you guys? So you, you started a distillery, but you knew that there was a, a, a plan that needed to be in place and a time frame that was going to need to uh, be established between time you started making the whiskey and when it was going to actually be available to the public. So what'd you do in the interim?
1: We were able to spin off a couple of clear spirits, right? Mm -hmm. So we were able to kind of start with vodka and gin, which we uh, ultimately can produce in a relatively short period of time. And then that was kind of our gateway to get into whiskey. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just like any other company, you set a philosophy of what you want your company to be, and and, uh, we chose... Farm to Bottle, we chose to be a company that produces using raw materials that are grown within a relatively tight radius. It's 30 miles from us. Um, So that allows us to have a relationship with a farmer, to understand the ground that the grain's grown on. And and all those things ultimately, at the end of the story, allow us to be a little bit more of a control freak about what the end product is going to be like. And we think that that's what the consumer, when they look to a small manufacturer, is looking for. They're looking for a better experience, and it's our job to do everything we can to deliver that.
0: For somebody who's looking to elevate their, their knowledge uh, about whiskey and about spirits in general, um, what are some things you recommend or that they should look for when they're making a purchase or maybe just ordering it at the bar?
1: There are a couple of really simple things, and and one thing is uh, when when we kind of talk about this deceptive advertising and and, uh, and, and people who don't really do what they say they do. I mean, if you look at a bottle of spirits and you kind of turn the bottle over, there has to be a declaration on that bottle that ultimately says, this person made this. And, And they'll use words like produced by, manufactured by, blended by, those all mean that that guy ultimately did not do the final distillation. If it says the word distilled by, then you know that that guy did it. So that kind of becomes the starting point of determining that, at least I know at that point, if it says distilled by that the guy who I'm buying from actually made the product. Then beyond that point, then we have to start thinking about, uh, especially when we're talking about whiskey, we have to think about raw material, we have to think about age, and we have to think about what kind of barrel was used. All those things are different defining factors, None of them is definitive, meaning that we can't say that a 10-year-old whiskey is always going to be great. I've had great 10-year-old whiskeys. I've had totally shitty 10-year-old whiskeys mm-hmm. too. Right? I've had great whiskeys made in a new barrel. I've had great whiskeys made in a used barrel. And so none of those things really define what's right or what's wrong, but they kind of allow you in your mind to start setting some criteria of what you like. And at the end of the game, it's all about what you taste and what you like. If you taste something and you like it, then all of those other kind of geeky factors really don't mm-hmm. matter. Yeah. And people just need to kind of go out and taste stuff. And we're given this opportunity now with 500 new distilleries in our country to taste things that haven't been made in the U.S. for 25 or 40 years. So it's a great time to go out and taste things, just like we've gotten used to tasting microbrews and small winery wines and things like that. And go taste some spirits. There's some great stuff out there right now.
0: Well, <clears throat> I live in, and grew up in Montana, and uh, there's some there's some great things happening um, there with local distilleries in the Flathead Valley and Missoula, uh, in the Bozeman and um, Madison Valley area. So um, it's been fun to cruise around and check those out and see what a very motivated set of individuals are doing around um you know, small towns, yeah, know, some small it, it's, communities.
1: It's really fun, especially in Mon- Montana. is a good example of that. And when we started nine years ago, you know, we were one of the first distilleries in the Northwest. And and so we kind of took it upon ourselves that that when other distillers were getting started, it, it was kind of a, a job of ours, for lack of better terminology, to try to set the bar sure. and to try to determine what, what we thought was the right way to do things. And listen, there's a million interpretations of that, but... You know, out of the Montana distilleries that exist today, right, half of those have spent some time in this building. Cool. Um, so it was just our way to maybe to mentor or work with other distillers to, to say that they're, you know, these things that we all do, we have to have some consistency, or otherwise the market's going to have a uh, – it's going to connotate the word craft distilling to be a bad thing at right. some point. right? If we can kind of all hold the same standards together – then we're all going to kind of rise as a ship together.
0: Absolutely, yeah. um, and you're you're going to, yeah, create a sense of uniform education for the consumer. <laughs> where, the, you know, oh, I tried some uh, some craft whiskey here, and it was it was craft, and yeah. I didn't like it, and and then you, you might turn them off, you know, for good. Yeah, th- there's always going to be good and bad in anything, right?
1: And then it's the markets. That's why I really try to get people to focus on flavor, right? If, if you like it, and if it makes sense to you. Um, then by all means support it but you know sometimes i think we support local just for the fact of supporting local but my opinion local's got a belly up to the bar too Mm -hmm. right there's just we can talk all we want to about these old american spirit companies the bottom line is there's a whole hell of a lot of those guys that make amazing products Mm -hmm. and do it incredibly efficiently and uh there are their their history and and they those guys care about those things yeah right they're They may have gotten kind of stuck in a rut to a certain degree. That's what new guys are doing is we're kind of pulling everybody out of the rut to a certain degree. So cocktail consumption, spirit consumption in the United States, all-time high since the 1970s, right? And I believe part of that is just the innovation of small guys coming in. It's made the big guys belly up to the bar a little bit better and try to clean their game up. And for the most part, I think they're doing that. Um, So when I try to use like a beer analogy – Budweiser is not bad beer. Budweiser is Budweiser, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it any better than an IPA or a pale ale made by your local brewery. It's just different. What they do, they're very good at. You can decide whether you like that or not.
0: Sure, and that's a that's a great way to look at it. Uh, what do you like? What uh, when you outside of uh, the Dry Fly lineup?
1: I like things that are done well, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I appreciate small distillers that, uh, that spend time to be creative and innovative and do things well. <clears throat> so when I'm tasting spirits about execution, and since I make spirits all the time and I taste things all the time in my own facility, you know, I think I have a relatively good palate. Um, so I like what I like. Mm-hmm. Um, what I really try not to do is, is I try not to tell people what I think, right? That, that's just my opinion of my sure. palate. And it really doesn't make any difference to anyone else. And we're we're always asked to kind of analyze and taste other people's stuff. And I I don't think that's an accurate thing for us to do. Because just because I like it really doesn't mean squat at the end of the day. Uh, It just means that I liked it. So I like people who execute. And I like people who are true to whatever story they're putting forth. Mm -hmm. Um, If that's real and if they're working hard to accomplish what they want to accomplish,
0: then I'm a big supporter. Very cool. Now, uh, you said you have four products that you guys have out. Can you four th- whiskeys. Four whiskeys. So uh, yeah,
1: so we do um, bourbon. We do wheat whiskey kind of in three different forms. We do uh, a wheat whiskey at 90 proof. We do a port-finished wheat whiskey, which means kind of at the end of the aging process, we moved it to a port barrel. And then we do wheat whiskey at cast strength, which basically means it's straight out of the barrel at a high proof, 120. And then we do whiskey from a grain called triticale. Um, so we make the only triticale whiskey in the world. We've won national, international awards for that. So those are the whiskeys that we kind of currently sell. Um, There are, in our own facility, we have, since we're nine years old, we have nine-year-old whiskey now, Mm -hmm. and and we have eight-year-old whiskey and seven-year-old whiskey and six-year-old whiskey as well. So this year, we'll introduce our first five-year-old whiskey. I'm here later in November, and then we'll move into next year doing seven-year-old whiskey and maybe the year after that, 10-year-old whiskey. So it becomes kind of this leapfrogging game of moving this aging process along. Some of the things we make will always be in this three- to four-year range. That's just kind of where their sweet spot is. Some other whiskeys are just going to take longer to get where you want them to be.
0: That's exciting that with each of those you, get, you have a new story to tell well, on, a, on a yearly basis. And it's basis. an old
1: story, right? It's mm-hmm. an old story. The interesting thing about whiskey is it really bases back on decisions you made seven or eight or nine years ago. And things we thought we, we, we did right— um, hopefully, come to fruition, you know, later on down the line.
0: That's ultimate investment. Just <laughs> yeah. to put it. Yeah, put we it we in call there it our gigantic it bank account. You know, we we
1: own six or seven hundred barrels of whiskey. That's not a bad thing. Worst case scenario, not going to go thirsty for a while.
0: There you go. There you go. Um, is there anything without? I don't want you to give away uh, too much of what's up your sleeve. But uh, of those that are still uh, down the pike, what uh, what are you most excited about?
1: Uh, I. I all those whiskeys that we have that we have kind of these extended aging plans for uh, are definitely the best whiskeys that we've made. Mm -hmm. Some of that is an age component. Uh, Some of that is uh, that we made some really good choices early on. Uh, So uh, I love the whiskeys we have right now. Typically, we're in that kind of three to four year aging period. Uh, These other whiskeys are just going to kind of be supercharged versions of those and and uh in whiskey you're talking about compact flavors and and things that happen over time that you just can't duplicate any other way so the best things we've made we just haven't put in a bottle yet
0: that's well it's exciting and it's um definitely something to look forward to right, yeah. um tell us a little bit about the the facility that we're in right now there's um looks like it's got a pretty interesting structure This building
1: uh, was, uh, there's kind of two parts of this building. Uh, When Spokane was originally, uh, did um, electric trolleys, that was kind of our public mode of transportation. This was the trolley barn. So when we had mechanical breakdowns on these electric trolleys, uh, this is where they were worked on. And then ultimately when we mechanized and went to mechanical buses, um, this part of the building that we're in was built. So this is a gigantic bus barn. It's really Mm -hmm. what it is. Um, These concrete floors are like 12 inches thick because they had to hold the weight of, you know, these big buses that they threw in here.
0: Um, this Ideally partic- suited for r- racks full of barrels Yeah, of right, whiskey. exactly.
1: This particular room that we're in, so somewhere in the late 1970s, somebody took this building and they were, uh, it was an individual who used to own a sawmill in Idaho and uh, he sold his mill and made a lot of money and he was a New Orleans freak. So he decided he wanted to build New Orleans in Spokane. So he built this, he bought this building and segmented it out and this actually used to be this venue here used to be a small concert venue so there's there's stage lighting in here and there's kind of an old where an old sound booth used to be up above and and there's a bar in here because you know people went to a small concert they they went and had a cocktail or two Um, The most interesting thing about this and it's not just because we're right before uh, halloween here recording Mm -hmm. this but this room is totally haunted so um, we, every day we open this room, and it has kind of this huge set of um, garage doors and there are eight video cameras in here. So it's, it's all part of a federal government scheme of us not getting away with any tax money that we owe. But we pay privilege to the uh, ghosts that are in here. We talk to them every morning because we've come in here and our forklift has been moved or pallets will move to a different area or bottles that we set somewhere aren't there anymore. So we are entirely confident that there are ghosts in this room.
0: Do you know any of the backstory on who those ghosts might be?
1: I honestly believe that what probably happened here, because it was a big mechanical thing, is that at some point someone got hurt in here. Somebody died, you know, when they were working on some kind of bus. And this is pure conjecture on my point, but but I believe it's probably true because we hear things. And we have seen on uh, the video cameras that are in here, they're all light sensitive. We've seen motion. We've never really seen anything, but we'll see motion. And it's impossible to get in this room once it's locked down.
0: Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. So. um,
1: Dry flag, ghost whiskey.
0: (laughs) I can just see. Yeah, that's (laughs) going to Halloween seasonal coming in 2016. Um, So there's whiskey made all around the globe. And I just learned uh, this little um, bit of fact that whiskey spelled with an E is from countries that have an E in their name. And that whiskey without the e, just S K Y, is countries that Canada, Japan, um, Scotland. Uh, that have, is the first time I've ever heard that. And uh, is it's, that it's, internet it's, trivia
1: or is that real? Uh, Did is, you Google it, that or it is, is that? It
0: is. Inter- I heard it uh, by way <laughs> of another interview with uh, another uh, person uh, discussing whiskey. So, wow! Uh, it's that it's is not, the first time I've not, ever heard that. Um, of the the few countries that I know that that make it uh it's i know that here in
1: here in the u.s uh you're given an option right you can choose either spelling oh okay Uh, um so our government kind of mandates everything that's on a label down to font size and characters per inch so to an incredibly high detail um and they allow you to use either form of the word
0: okay well good to know that being said a little bit more accurate i don't Uh, know if it's accurate but so have you, uh, have you done much traveling to, you know, call it research or, or to study Not really
1: research. These- um, again, again, our primary emphasis here was to be very agricultural about where we're at. Um, so our research really has spent more time with local farmers on um, seed varieties that they're using. Um, so we, we try to use old heirloom seed varieties and things that were probably developed here in eastern Washington to grow in eastern Washington. Um, And then kind of our philosophy, and that is that the better the grain is ultimately, the better the end product's going to be. So we like to tell our customers, you know, our job is to take these amazing agricultural products that are grown here, get them from a great farmer. And we really only have two, and they're amazing families. Get it in here and then do everything we can to process it and get out of its way and Mm -hmm. just let it come through.
0: Very cool. Have you... um where did you learn to do this? Where How did the distilling process start for, uh, for great you? Great question. Um,
1: I never distilled a drop, nor nor did Kent, uh, so I'll put that jointly, uh, a drop of anything until we had, you know, a half a million dollars worth of distilling equipment in this mm-hmm. building. Um, so uh, our proposition was maybe a little bit different. Um, we, we knew we had this amazing raw material um, growing area that we could fall back on. Um, We think we made the best decision in terms of equipment manufacturers. We bought from a 170-year-old company that is the longest continuous manufacturer in the world of distilling equipment. Uh, And we thought that we had the ability kind of from our past to be able to take products to market. So then it was just a connect-the-dot thing after that. So then it was starting with the simplest things we could and then moving to more complex things as we went uh, along. Uh, So it was way more theoretical when we started. Um, Practically, we we learned just by doing it, Mm -hmm. plain and simple.
0: How long did that take? I mean, how long did you guys kind of mess around? I can
1: honestly say that uh, with relatively rare exception, we have never thrown batches of things away. Um, So again, it was somewhat a function of of starting with maybe simpler things that are less defined, like uh, vodka is Pretty much a mechanical process, right? Mm-hmm. So as long as we can execute that process, we're going to be okay. On gin, we started entering flavor components into the equation, right? So that was a much more drawn-out, complicated um, startup process. Uh, and then whiskey, we all of a sudden aid, enter age into the equation, right, which is something that none of us can control. So we tried to make right decisions, made whiskey, sat back, let it go through in a year, year and a half worth of aging before we decided to make more, And and then once it came out of the barrel, we decided that we were on course. Then we put the pedal to the metal and started making more. So relatively long, drawn-out product development cycle.
0: Well, uh, good for you guys. I think there was probably... um, There was some some consumption involved. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. A lot of... of, Well, it's uh, R&D. Testing. Mm -hmm. Testing. Absolutely. For sure. Now, you said you don't uh, get to fish as much as you'd like to anymore but uh, you do have some great... Does anyone get a fish as much as they like that's to? Right. That's right, that's very true, I mean, probably really, not right? Um, it's, it, it's a constant battle but uh, um, can you talk a little bit about the fishing just here in the greater Spokane area?
1: Yeah I, I've traveled all over the United States so I, I've done that for in my historical job of, uh, of being a corporate guy, I traveled for a living um, even with dry fly, I get to travel all over And uh, the greatest thing I can say about Spokane is I always want to come home. And if you're an outdoor person and that is a primary concern of your life, then being in the inland Northwest, whether that's eastern Washington, northern Idaho, western Montana, I mean, listen, we live in the best place there is to live. Um, You just have to figure out how you live here. Yeah. And if you can, then you make those lifestyle decisions to live here and maybe sacrifice some of the things that people in other places have. But there is never a lack of place to fish around here and and we're fortunate with our area here to be able to travel if we want to within an hour's time of finding you know lakes or rivers or streams to fish on Um, the Spokane is a fishery that is finally starting to come around that has gone through kind of through hell and back with some some mining issues and some historical disadvantages that have really affected this river we have our own um Native redbound trout that is specific to this river here, and I think people are starting to realize that this is a this is an asset for our community, yeah. and we need to take a hell of a lot better care of it than we have. Um, I'm amazed. I, I did some floats this summer where, with some friends through the on the Spokane through our city, and and uh, you would never know you were in a metropolitan city, floating on the river. You know, there's trees, and you don't see development. You don't see housing um, you see other users of the river in other ways shapes or forms but I mean this is a great river and and uh, and people should spend more time on it I think there's never a shortage of places to go so uh, it's great to fish around here
0: it's a really really cool corner of uh, of Washington and in, in, in the Northwest um, a lot of good stuff within a, a stone's throw yeah exactly
1: sure. and it's just easy I mean it really becomes a function of how much time do you have and then you you make your fishing decision based upon that you have an hour or two, you're going know, to rip down to the Spokane. It's easy. You know, if we have two or three hours, we can go to the North Fork of the Cotter Lane, the St. Joe. I mean, there, there's not a shortage of places to go through if you want to throw on a river. If you want to go to a lake, you can do that. If you want to do a Spring Creek, you can do that. Everything is here relatively close.
0: Very cool. I'm, I need to spend a little bit more time around here uh, doing some exploring. And yeah, it's fun you and i have had the chance to uh do a little fishing down in in Victor Idaho uh at a at a um, really cool event casting for a cure uh i know a, a an organization and an event that's that's near and dear to your heart and um for those of you that don't know uh casting for a cure is a, is a uh organization and a, and a um a series of events that uh seeks to raise uh awareness and and funding to um find a cure for Rett syndrome. And ret is a uh, genetic disorder that uh, affects young girls. It's usually found, um, the parents find out that uh, their daughter has it uh, between two, three years of age, and um, these girls grow up. Uh, perfectly normally and uh, int- until that point and then mom and dad start to uh, see that um, something's maybe not quite right and uh, for a long time um, and still this is an issue uh, that there was a lot of mi- misdiagnosis um, there was not a ton of knowledge or, or uh, information out there for parents or for doctors for that matter um, that this was um, might be the issue with the child and um, You guys have been uh, great supporters of of Casting for a Cure, and um, do you mind talking a little bit about um, the event, your involvement, and um, what it's meant to you? it is near
1: and dear to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really fortunate to find Bill Farnham uh, um, right when we started, so we're we're going back maybe nine years ago, and it was an entirely chance thing. Literally, it was a Google Fest, and uh, we were looking for... Fly fishing oriented charities to deal with and um, we felt that that was part of our mission as a company uh, to 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 help other people and We randomly found bill. I, I literally think it was the first day He had ever put a website together and I found it and I contacted Bill and said, you know Listen you are trying to accomplish something that uh, that we want in on uh, so hooked up with Bill, got involved with Rhett and, uh, and Bill, um, I would do anything for those guys. And, uh, and I don't ever need anything returning, nor the, neither does Dry Fly. It is the right thing for us to do. And, and uh, I, I hope we have helped, and I, and I know we have, uh, moved the ball for them. And uh, there are amazing things happening with this organization. And, and the great thing about a small charity like this is that a relatively small group of people can affect the outcome. This is, a, this is not a thing that affects a huge number of kids. Um, however, it's still important. And uh, when we can get together as a fly fishing community and, uh, and raise you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. And and in the scope of a big charity, that's nothing. In the scope of RET, that's huge. And it makes a direct effect. And uh, I've been fortunate to be with those guys now for nine years and and now I can sit and listen to them talk and have the doctors talk about things that have happened as a result of what we've done. And that makes the circle complete. Um, So we're honored to,
0: uh, to work with those guys. It is, a, it is a bill, uh, Farnham, the, the founders. And, and I should throw Jim's name into
1: Jim it. It in that entire group. I, yeah. That is my vacation for the year yeah. is to hang out with my casting for a cure buddies. And, uh, I, I don't get a chance to spend a lot of time out of here as a small business guy. Uh, we're busy guys here, but you know, that week or week and a half is me going and hanging out with my buddies and doing something cool.
0: It is, it is cool. And, and they're, they're, Fantastic individuals, Bill Farnham and, and Jim Copeland, and there's a there's a, a, a long cast of 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 supporters. Um, Bill's wife Beth certainly right there at, at his right hand and and doing an uh, amazing job um, raising their kids and their their daughter Ella who who suffers from ret. And um, when you get a chance to meet. Uh, these girls that are affected by Rhett and their parents, um, it really—they're—they're uh, they're remarkable souls. They are yeah. they're such um, beautiful children, and you—and you—you see that within this little girl is—is—is is a, is a person that's, you know, fighting to communicate and fighting to make herself heard.
1: But Bill calls me every year, and I talk to Jim all the time, and we talk when the events are done about, uh, and they thank me, which I think is ridiculous. I I. And I thank them mm-hmm. for the opportunity uh, to help. And I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago, uh, and um, we had someone present, and they said that ultimately, that you know, there is there's different levels of giving to a charitable organization. There there are those of us who write a check or do something monetary, and then the next step really is to engage and to get involved. And uh, and I. If you ask Jim or Bill, they'll tell you the same thing every year. And I always tell them, like, guys, I I just don't think we do enough. I mean, I I appreciate you saying what you say, but and I got to figure out some other way to help you out because it may be that those three bottles that I put up for some charity auction that are, that's going to turn the tide here. And I I think it's that close. I, I really do.
0: The uh, the research for. Um the treatments for ret it, there's a there's not a large you know by medical treatment standards monetary sum attached with um, testing each one of these treatments but there's a long long list of of treatments that need to be tested so each one of the the, the tests costs a certain amount of money the more money that's raised the more tests there can be and. There has been uh, some some ground gained, and even in the last couple years, there are um, there are some the girl some girls that are in um, you know significant treatments currently, um, and and hopefully seeing some results. And the remarkable thing about the the research that's already gone. Uh, that has already happened is that they've, they've narrowed down, you know, the, the gene or the part of the gene yep, that exactly. is affected. So they're able to target those treatments uh, directly, which is, uh, which is, as I understand it, and I'm certainly no medical ex- expert, but uh, unique to uh, a, a lot of uh, such disorders. Yeah,
1: and I think the other great thing that's happened too is ultimately they found this very strange partner in red, and that partner is our federal government who has ultimately been involved in kind of other brain-related issues and in studying traumatic stress syndrome and, and, uh, and our wounded warriors who come back with brain-related issues. And what a lot of those researchers have found is that we're dealing with the same kind of issues we're dealing with these red girls, right? That, that in, at the end of the day, things that happen in your brain are things that happen in your brain. Uh, So I know there's been a lot of cooperative work, and it has been this multiplier effect um, for um, RET fundraising of being able to be kind of matched on this multiple basis by government spending. So as much as we complain about our federal government, this may be one circumstance where uh, the investments that are being made by our government in research um, may really help these girls. and, And that has been, I think, a really huge thing for RET over the last two or three years.
0: It's, it's very very cool, and it's exciting to know that you know there might be um, big big change not uh, not that far away. There's still still a long way to go though, and and um, any any bit of support is 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 great support. And uh, the events themselves are fantastic. And if you have the opportunity to to attend or um, build a team, or if your your company or your business um, uh, you've got some folks that are into fly fishing this is a really great group of people in some absolutely phenomenal locations down at uh, Teton Springs and in, in Victor Idaho um, with the folks at World Cast Anglers uh, out at the Barzee Ranch uh, on the Smith River and it, it's 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 remarkable camaraderie it is world class fishing and it's a it's an awesome awesome chance to to uh, help these girls and 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 meet some of the f- the families affected by this um so the if you if you google casting for uh cure um ret org i believe as well yep. um or listen
1: you, to, you call us a dry fly call <laughs> call, call don you call me and i'll if you want more if you want more information i'll hook you up uh, i am I'm all in.
0: Where can uh, where can folks, if they're not uh, they're not in the Spokane area, but they're interested in in trying a little dry fly themselves, uh, can they, they find out uh, via your website where they can? They get can. It
1: it, it, it's a little bit confusing, right? Because ultimately, uh, it's a rapidly changing world out there. But um, there's always two defaults: a give us a call, and or send us a note off of our website. Um, and we'll be happy to try to direct you to something locally. Now, B, if you go to our website there, there's typically going to be a map there. You'll be able to click on your state and at the very least find out who our distributor or who our partner is in that state. Um, my experience is it's, it's easier to call those guys and ask them what's close to you, and they can tell you, uh, versus trying to call me and, and try to keep track of 35 states' worth of stuff. So um, either way, we'll help you. If you have a
0: need, we're going to help you fill it good including your an empty glass yeah exactly <laughs> well don thank you guys thank you so much and uh and thanks to kent to you and um the crew here at, at dry fly for letting us um poach your time and your space and uh-huh. uh and a little bit of your whiskey uh we'd love to do it again we're going to be here uh with the fly fishing film tour show in spokane um the first tuesday in february i believe it's february 2nd at the bing crosby so uh we look yeah, forward no, to seeing yeah, you yeah and we're
1: gonna we're gonna we're gonna work a cool gig into that too. There yeah. may even be a casting for a cure angle to that. Cool. So, well, we'll see what we, happens. We would love so, that
0: and uh, we'll uh, we'll put a party together for sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. Cool man. Well thanks so much for your time and, and uh, um, good luck with the uh, the bourbon bottling and, yeah. and everything coming down the down the pipe. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Cheers.